Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're pediatric residents at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into the case. A 17-year-old girl presents to the ED with three days of nausea, abdominal pain, and vomiting. She is a known patient with diabetes and missed a couple of her insulin doses two days ago. She's tachycardic, breathing abnormally, and has dry mucous membranes. Blood sugar is 468, and urine shows three ketones. All right, Tammy. So we have a pretty sweet topic to talk about. It's sweet because it's about an acute care topic, which you know I love and is very cool, but it's also about diabetes. Get it? (laughs) Insert cue for eye roll here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stick to my day job. Point taken. Let's talk about DKA, which stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. This is a serious complication of diabetes and the most common diabetes-related cause of mortality in children with diabetes. Yeah, and we see it commonly in pediatrics because it tends to be more common in type 1 diabetes, although we're also starting to see it more and more with our patients with type 2 diabetes. So what is DKA? The term DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis, is nice because the clinical definition is actually in the name itself. So diabetes, or more strictly speaking, blood sugar greater than 200, ketones, either in the urine or in the blood, and acidosis, which is defined as a blood pH less than 7.3 or a bicarb less than 15. With this low of a bicarb, patients will have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. How do these patients typically present to us? Patients will present with increased thirst, aka polydipsia, increased urination, aka polyuria, weight loss, fruity acetone breath, abnormal Kuzmal breathing, tachycardia, tachypnea, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. If severe, it can cause blurry vision, confusion, and drowsiness, eventually leading to coma or death. We often see new diagnosis diabetes present in DKA, but we also often have patients with known diabetes present with DKA as well, especially when their diabetes is in poor control. In newly diagnosed patients, risk factors for DKA include younger age, delayed diagnosis, lower socioeconomic status, and residents in a country with a low prevalence of type 1 diabetes. In patients with known diabetes, DKA can be due to various reasons such as limited access, pump malfunction, usually a blocked or clogged insulin infusion set, poor medication adherence or misinformation, or illness. Illnesses can trigger DKA because the stress hormone levels cause hyperglycemia and the production of ketones, i.e. a higher insulin requirement than baseline. So most DKA episodes in children with known diabetes are caused by diabetes mismanagement, and illness is actually only the cause in about 20% of them. So Tammy, how do we manage DKA? Well, let's go over the recommendations for DKA management based on the AAP guidelines as well as the UC Davis DKA protocol. If there is a suspicion for DKA, you should immediately get a POC or point-of-care glucose and a point-of-care urine ketone test. Also, send a venous blood gas and basic metabolic panel, looking mostly at the potassium, bicarbonate, creatinine, and glucose. Don't forget your ABCs of airway, breathing, and circulation in emergent assessment and make sure to assess their level of consciousness and whether they can protect their airway. You may consider getting an infectious workup, including a complete blood count or CBC based on the history since infection can be a trigger for DKA. If there's severe or persistent abdominal pain, then consider getting an amylase and lipase as pancreatitis is a rare complication of DKA. At UC Davis, we don't routinely get those because they can be elevated with inflammation, but without any symptoms don't actually indicate pancreatitis. 
make sure to get IV access as well for fluids. For initial management, we start with fluid resuscitation with normal saline boluses. If you've listened to our fluid episode, you'll remember that we usually bolus with 20 mils per gig with a max of one liter. This often happens in the emergency department as most DKA patients will have some amount of dehydration from the polyuria, vomiting, and slash or illness. Fluid resuscitation should happen before starting insulin therapy. We generally start the patients on two times maintenance IV fluids after bolusing to account for additional fluid deficits. The goal is to replace fluid deficit over 24 to 48 hours. Okay, so I get the normal saline and the bolusing, but why two times maintenance fluids? Well, there's some fancy math that you can do to calculate the actual water deficit from dehydration. But for most patients, once you subtract the initial one to three boluses given, the two times maintenance usually makes up for the remaining fluid deficit. In patients with severe DKA, 2.5 times maintenance might even be needed. So we do normal saline fluids until starting the DKA protocol, which we'll talk about in just a moment. If glucose is less than 300, we can use D5 normal saline, but otherwise it probably makes more sense to use normal saline without the glucose or dextrose. We check the blood gases frequently because sometimes if the DKA is mild enough, it can resolve with just simple fluid hydration. Yeah, we've seen that sometimes with our patients who are transferred over here from another hospital for DKA, where they fluid resuscitate over there and then send them here for IV insulin. When we recheck the gases, the gap is already closed and they're no longer in DKA because the hydration was enough to clear them. In that case, then they can just be managed on the floor. However, if the DKA persists despite fluid resuscitation, then they automatically go to the PICU for frequent monitoring and then get started on the insulin drip per the Goldenrod protocol. The UC Davis, quote, Goldenrod protocol uses what you might know as the two-bag system for managing DKA. We just call it the Goldenrod protocol because of the color of the paper that we used to print the protocol on a long time ago, and the name has just stuck around. Our initial goal is to start an insulin drip within the second hour of presentation, starting at a rate of 0.05 to 0.1 units per keg per hour, at least one hour after starting fluid replacement therapy. Then we run two different bags of IV fluids. At UC Davis, bag one contains half normal saline with 20 mil equivalents of potassium acetate and 20 mil equivalents of potassium phosphate, while bag two contains D10 half normal saline with 20 mil equivalents of potassium acetate and 20 mil equivalents of potassium phosphate. If the patient's hyperkalemic, we defer potassium therapy until we know that they're urinating to make sure that the renal function is intact. If the corrected sodium is less than 140, consider using normal saline instead to avoid hyponatremia, and definitely use normal saline if the corrected sodium is less than 130. Remember that in diabetes, you'll have a falsely low sodium because the high serum glucoses cause an osmotic effect and draw water from the tissue into the vascular space to dilute your serum sodium. As you correct the hyperglycemia, however, the water will leave the vascular space and your serum sodium will rise. There's different correction factors that you can use, but generally you subtract 100 from the measured serum glucose, multiply by a correction factor, and then add it to the measured sodium value to get the estimated true sodium value. There's a couple different correction factors you can use, but MDCalc is useful, and 1.6 per 100 milligrams per deciliter has the best evidence to support it. Sounds complicated. I probably usually just use MDCalc. So why do we use the two-bag system? Why not just use one bag of fluids? Well, let's hear from Dr. Caroline Schulmeister, one of our pediatric endocrinologists at UC Davis, on why we use the system. So the reason we use the two-bag system is because what's really important 
um, in terms of DKA is the reason why people get into DKA is not because of high blood sugars, but rather not enough insulin. So someone can have a normal or a blood sugar within range um, and still actually be in, in DKA and have a lot of ketones that they need to clear. And so in order to do that, we have to give insulin. And so uh, you can't give insulin or you shouldn't give insulin to someone who has a normal or lower blood sugar. And so that's why the two bag system is really important because we have the ability to give glucose um, to someone so that we can continue giving insulin to help them clear their ketones. So the reason why we give glucose in addition to the insulin is because the hyperglycemia in DKA almost always resolves before the ketosis. There's a common misconception about rapid glucose shifts causing cerebral edema, but actually there isn't any data to support this. Well, that's really good to know, because that's what I thought happened with cerebral edema, and that's I'm pretty sure what everyone else has taught me. So another thing to remember is that with DKA, your total body is low in potassium, even if the serum potassium is high. The potassium level almost always drops substantially during treatment, hence the need to give potassium in the fluids. Yeah, and I think this is an important point to highlight that learners often struggle with. The serum potassium can be normal, low, or abnormally high in DKA just based on the electrolyte shifts that occur with hyperglycemia. However, they will be total body potassium depleted. So during treatment, potassium will shift back into the intracellular space, hence why it's important to still give potassium in the fluids. Other institutions will opt for doing potassium chloride instead, but that can be tricky because the chloride loading can also cause metabolic acidosis. This makes it difficult to determine whether the acidosis from the DKA has resolved. DKA patients also tend to be low in phosphorus as well, which is another reason why we opt for adding the phosphorus back in. Okay, so that makes sense. What about putting in some bicarb to help with acidosis? Yeah, and I think a lot of people have this thought as well. And it sounds okay in theory, but actually is a big no-no, especially in DKA. Giving bicarb to help with metabolic acidosis in general has not been shown to improve outcomes, and in DKA specifically, it has actually been shown to increase the risk of cerebral edema. So the bicarbonate causes a paradoxical central nervous system acidosis, and that's probably the connection to the higher risk for cerebral edema. So what happens is it paradoxically worsens acidosis in the brain because almost all the bicarb gets converted to CO2 and water, which then cross the blood-brain barrier to generate carbonic acid in the brain. So bicarb is not recommended except for life-threatening hyperkalemia or severe acidosis, so like pH less than 6.9, with evidence of cardiac compromise. Cerebral edema could be a whole other episode, so we won't talk about it in too much detail here. But briefly, we'll just say that risk factors for cerebral edema include severe acidosis, again meaning a pH less than 7, giving bicarb, having an elevated BUN, and low arterial CO2 on presentation. So how do patients with cerebral edema present? Yeah, patients will present with severe or progressively worsening headache, altered mental status. Often they're super tired and not responding to your questions appropriately. The Cushing's triad, so bradycardia, irregular respiratory rate, widened pulse pressure, changes in neurological status, so restlessness, irritability, drowsiness, confusion, and incontinence. They may also have some focal neurological deficits like cranial nerve palsies. There's some diagnostic criteria you can use to determine if a patient has cerebral edema, but if there's any concerns for cerebral edema, there's a low threshold to give IV mannitol or hypertonic saline. Sounds like a few of my patients that I've seen in the PICU. 
So once you've started treating the DKA, how do you know if you fix their acidosis? Yeah, so when the anion graph has closed, the pH has normalized and the bicarb has normalized or is at least close to normal, meaning 18 and higher. Once this has happened, then you can talk about transitioning to a regular subcutaneous insulin. So at UC Davis, we usually do this with the meal to make sure that the patient is able to tolerate the food and isn't feeling super nauseous or vomiting. We'll give the first dose of long-acting insulin and then turn off the insulin drip before sending them down to the floor for further management. That's where we continue to correct the hyperglycemia and try to identify the cause of the DKA to prevent it from happening again. This means identifying and correcting the risk factors for DKA that we talked about before. So to summarize, we use hydration, insulin drip, and the two-bag system with dextrose and half-normal saline to treat DKA. We give potassium and phosphate, but do not give bicarb. We check the labs frequently until the gap has closed, and we can transition to sub-Q insulin at that time. We'll talk about how to manage non-DKA diabetes in another episode, but hopefully now you'll feel a little more comfortable with managing DKA acutely. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Mogania for podcasting production support and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlist for supervision. We are supported by funding from the UC Davis Medical Center Department of Pediatrics and the Western Association of Pediatric Program Directors. 